you're not within the world as much as the world is within your own awareness. And this wisdom transforms the way you go about your daily life. Awareness, the final frontier. These are the explorations of Jonathan Robinson and Brian Tom O'Connor. Their continuing mission, to discover fresh new paths to the mystery within, to seek out new joys and new methods of awakening, to boldly go into the heart of expanded consciousness. This is Awareness Explorers. Welcome back, Awareness Explorers. Great to have you as usual. I am your co-host, Jonathan Robinson. I'm with my co-host. Brian Tom O'Connor. And we are excited and honored to have a guest, Sivan Hassett, who I will tell you about in a moment. He's a expert, we'll call it, uh, he might say differently, in Dzogchen, which is a, a Tibetan practice. Uh, before I introduce Sivan, I want to just do a call out to our Patreon supporters. Thank you, especially Christy. And um, if you want extra stuff, go to patreon.com forward slash awareness explorers. And we'll send you all kinds of extra stuff, including my latest article, which is called Eight Seconds to More Joy and Awakening, which uh, has been a fun practice I've been doing. And a lot of people seem to be getting good stuff from it. But um, anything you have to say before I introduce Sivan? The only thing is to welcome Sivan, and I'm so grateful that uh, you're joining us, and I really enjoyed reading your book, Entering the Mind. Oh, great. Thank you. So let's tell you some stuff about Sivan Hassett. He's a writer, editor, and the publisher of Riot Material Magazine. He's a one-time professor of literature and a decades-long practitioner of Dzogchen, which is a radical wisdom practice which points the practitioner directly towards the recognition of their own mind in its natural state. His new book is Entering the Mind, which is a richly poetic and deep exploration of that particular transformative practice. Welcome to Awareness Explorer, Sivan. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, we have a rather sophisticated audience, but not everybody, including me, is very familiar with Dzogchen. Mm. Uh, what is your quick description of it, and how did you get into it? Well, Dzogchen is uh, considered the highest wisdom practice on the planet because it it is uh, the teachings point you directly to the nature of your own mind. And this is the mind that gives rise to everything about ourselves, including our body, but all thoughts, all perceptions. And this mind is stable, empty, and, and we, that word is often used in kind of cliche form. But when you're actually sitting in the natural state observing and you're, what you're observing is your own mind is you're seeing the emptiness of your own form. The body is sitting with an awareness rather than awareness within the body. And you're seeing uh, an incredible stability and vastness within your own sense of awareness and your own perception. So the teachings point you there. They show you how to recognize it, which is critical because oftentimes every one of us slip in and out of this natural state without knowing it. It feels great. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of like, wow, that was just a beautiful moment. Um, it, it could happen while you're running. It can happen while you're in a car crash. Um, it can happen at any time. 
so Dzogchen teaches you how to recognize it. And then from there, they instruct you on how to rest there without being pulled out constantly by the various distractions and most, mostly your thoughts. That's a good brief description. Would you say then it's the same as what could be called entering pure awareness and that's a set of practices to help people to do that? Well, yes, if pure awareness is speaking to this idea of recognizing what's already within you, then yes. I don't know of any other, many other traditions on the planet, Mahamudra and Dzogchen are kind of the two that I'm aware of. Even Zen will take you up to the point of recognizing the emptiness of all things, but they don't take you to that next level of who is the one recognizing the emptiness in these things? You know, what, what, what part of us is seeing that? And Dzogchen really breaks it down, you know, like where you're actually looking at the various parts of your body and trying to find where the awareness is in that body. So um, as far as I understand, Dzogchen is the one that really shows you how to recognize. And the, the recognition is the absolutely critical part. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about uh, entering the mind and we talk about the mind, most of us think of the mind as our individual set of thoughts. But it seems to me that, I mean, that's the everyday use of the word. It seems yeah. to me you're talking about something a lot, a lot deeper or a lot more universal is that is that true well the individual is is uh is true and it's critical to for any practitioner to recognize that this is your own individual perspective within the greater space of all things and this perspective that you have is ongoing beyond this body timelessly forever and ever and ever and we inhabit new bodies even dream bodies even bodies in the the death state and, and in this life, the body that we inhabit is changing continually, but our awareness perspective is always going to be the same forever and ever and ever. So Dzogchen is saying, okay, th this is an individual perspective. You're going to recognize it, but it's also now what gives rise to all the thoughts. It gives, gives rise to all perceptions and all feelings and the, the way you in particular view the world. Mm-hmm. Now, you use the word uh, recognize what's there, and I, I like that because, of course, awareness is always there in the background. Right. What would be an example of, of how you might tell someone who's new to this or somebody even not new to this uh, a way to recognize it while they're going about their lives? Well, the, the, I think the critical part is you, you have to familiarize yourself with it uh, in stillness. So mm -hmm. first familiarize yourself with it in meditation practice, because then you can control the situation around you in terms of noise and distractions. And in recognizing that the great masters will just simply, um, it's always going to be a one-to-one -one when you're sitting with a master who's pointing out this, this mind of yours. Um, but in general, the, the, the questions that they will pose to you is, where does it arise from? When you're looking at this awareness, you've already settled down and you've kind of quieted the mind in terms of thoughts there. You, you have a very stable sense of awareness. And then the master will be asking you, so where does this awareness rise from? And you're kind of looking for it. And the questions aren't so much as important as the actual act of looking for where the arisal is. Where is it abiding? And then where is it going? Does it have a shape? Does it have a color? And in the looking, what you're seeing is that the awareness that you're seeing is none of that, but it's still there. 
and it's stable. And that's where the eye is intended to fall. So in all the searching, you're seeing the stability and then you recognize that that stability is it. And in doing that, you're the, the key here is then to rest in it without getting distracted because in the resting, the wisdom of your timeless being begins to sneak up and, and speak quietly to you over, over time. And the longer you're in there, and it doesn't last long when you're first doing this because thoughts always will come, um, you recognize the thought and you try to get back in. So it's, it's a really a long, it's a very simple practice, but it's quite difficult at the same time. Yes, it reminds me of a quote from your book that that, that I enjoyed, where, where you say, um, how do you become confident in knowing this mind? You first recognize it, and then you rest in it. Yes. Recognize and rest, recognize and rest. Do this over and over and over. Yes. And that that, that quote is a kind of a direct in, in the lineage of Ergen Rinpoche, Tukul Ergen Rinpoche, who what his mantra was, you know, short moments many times. And this is the only way to do it, because when you're first entering it and for a long time after it, you, you're in there for short moments. You recognize it. It's you see it at first. You're blown away by it because it's so truly amazing. And you go, wow, I can't believe this is here in front of me. You get past that because you want to let go of all that. And then you just begin to sit with it. And and then it begins to open up and even stabilize even more. And this is within each one of us. And you recognize that the world itself is within this awareness of yours. You're not within the world as much as the world is within your own awareness. And this wisdom transforms the way you just do go about your daily life. So you asked earlier about how do you do this in your daily life? You begin to yearn for this kind of relationship with the world. So even when you're distracted, you go, oh, I got to wake up to this. You know, I'm, I'm distracted. I got to. I got to re-recognize. And, and then, so it's a continual practice. You're continually trying to re-engage until ultimately you become the great master that you're aiming to be. And uh, you don't need to try very hard. Mm -hmm. You know, many years ago when I was in Nepal, uh, I came across somebody who said, I, I can read, you know, secret teachings of uh, Tibetans. And, you know, he charged me some money for this. Um, so I got this book, you know, like I couldn't take it out of the, his area. And uh, I was very excited and basically said, recognize yourself as awareness on the you know first page, and then try to move your pinky while recognizing yourself as awareness. And then, you know, later on, it was move, you know, two fingers. And then, like page 200 was kind of talk about a business transaction while recognizing yourself as awareness. And that's all it said. It didn't have anything else, but it was no, actually no, very useful, you know, yeah. how to slowly but surely rest as awareness while doing various activities. Do you have any pointers for what helps people to quote rest in this experience? Well, there's a practice called Shamatha practice that, uh, that, um, is kind of a pre-vipassana um, practice. Vipassana is the insight meditation practice where you're actually looking at your own mind and, and coming becoming familiar with it. The pre-practice to this is stabilizing the mind first. So you're actually using a crutch of sorts, sca a scaffold. You can use a rock. You can use a picture of a Buddha. You can use your breath. But you're training the mind to stabilize on something mm -hmm. uh, so that the thoughts don't come. Basically, you're, you're attempting to 
create a space where the thoughts don't enter. And that, and that space is between you and the rock. And for me, it was a little pebble. Um, uh, for many people, it's a, it's a beautiful image of the Buddha or the eyes of something. Um, and so you stabilize there. And then at some point you remove that support. And now you're looking at the clarity of your, the space with it in front of you in the same distance. And by the time you learn to stabilize in this uh, state of awareness, it's not an insight practice, but it's a, it's a, it's really a practice that allows you to now stabilize in the insight practice of Vipassana. And uh, so that's kind of the, really, as far as I know, the only way to get there and, and, Trust that you're going to stabilize there. Hmm. Be stable there. You mentioned uh, earlier um, small moments many times, and I can certainly attest to that because uh, when I first started many years ago, I thought that one had to meditate for hours, and the object was that more hours you put in, the better. And then um, I had a teacher who, who, who said that very, very thing to me. And uh, I realized, oh, actually, I could be pure empty awareness for a couple of seconds. That's not hard. Yes. And then a couple of minutes late, and then I can do it a couple of minutes late. And then like little like drops of oil on a pan. Yes. Eventually, they start to connect and become one mm. big drop. Yeah. And I, um, I did uh, transcendental meditation many years ago. And trans it's a nice little practice to kind of show you what you're aiming for because it does drop you in there for a bit but you don't have the skill to stay there so you get back out and use the mantra but th there was a metaphor that they used that i love was um a white piece of paper and you just like one punch hole through it one punch hole through it and you got at the beginning you just have these two little punches and then but after a couple of years the whole paper's filled with holes and this is the natural state that they're talking about until it just falls apart and when it falls apart that's it you you've awakened and in some ways, it is like that. Those little moments that you enter are little moments that you recognize and are become familiar with. And then now you know what you're looking for, you know? So now you could go, okay, I, you know, I, I, this isn't it. This isn't it. Oh, I found it. Hello. And then you, you rest there for a minute, a minute, 30 seconds. It doesn't matter. But the long, the more you practice, the longer you're going to stay there. Yeah, I, I noticed that for myself that it's almost as if uh, these little moments carry a momentum with them. That if I do a lot of those little moments in the first hour, it seems like then it's very easy to maintain having more of those moments during the day. The, yeah. By the afternoon, I'm like very much resting in that state. Yes. Whereas if I miss those little moments the first couple of hours and I'm hot and busyness then it yeah. becomes much harder to get there i totally agree and, which is why i oftentimes will wake up at one in the morning and just sit up and meditate for a couple hours because my mind isn't really in the active mode and it really does enjoy that resting within you know it takes it does still takes a bit to get there but once i'm there i can really remain stable for quite a while and this is um it's it's really it's transformative and how it you're not doing anything. You're not analyzing. And, you know, the mind wants to talk about it while you're sitting there. You know, it wants to, it wants to put words to this concept or this experience that you're doing. And, you know, it's easy to engage with it. So you can have language for yourself for moments like this, where, what is this about? You know, well, a lot of that 
that a lot of what's coming out here has already been discussed in my own mind sitting in that meditation practice. But that could be a problem too, because too much of that conceptualizing uh, without allowing just the natural winds of this insight to come up gets in the way of the wisdom that does want to come up. Mm -hmm. So it's a continual, you're, you're continually tweaking. And is the wisdom that comes up, is it essentially nonverbal? It's totally nonverbal. It's totally nonverbal in the sense that it really is like opening doors to allow things out. And for me, what was allowed out was a lot of anxiety over the years. Here and there, bits of depression, nothing major, but enough to be, you know, like see that, oh, I'm kind of in a downswing for a while here. And just confusion all that kind of when I began to practice and recognize and then rest within a very short period of time, all that stuff on its own began to disappear. And I remember when my son four or five years ago said, dad, I would love for you to speak it, speak it at my wedding. You know, it'd be amazing if you could. I said, oh, geez, Jacob, I'm, I don't know. I got anxiety, you know, that, that would really bring up a lot of anxiety. He's like, well, think about it. I understand, you know, I get it. You know, like, like, I don't know if I could do that. Um, but within a, like a short time after that, because I was really hitting my stride in the practice within a year, it was like, man, I would, because the pandemic hit. And also, so his wedding was delayed. It was like, easy, I could do it. It was like all that stuff just disappeared. All the fear, all the anxiety, all the confusion, it just, it's, it's gone. And what really does come up is this idea of like a, a sense of compassion for for almost everybody. You know, not a sense of, you know, that wet, drippy compassion, but of real honest, you know, like an understanding empathy for what people are doing in the world. And it just makes uh, life so much smoother and easier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that that compassion comes from knowing that our true nature, which is which which is qualityless, which is empty, is identical to everyone else. So everyone. Yes. And everything. Exactly. And some teachers talk about these, as you mentioned, these emotions that arise, that sometimes when we first awaken to our true nature, that sometimes these suppressed emotions start to bubble up and, mm. and that that's actually part of the process. And, and it, you indicated that maybe they sort of went away by themselves, but is it also necessary to to look for where you're resisting them or where you're trying to prevent them and seeing if you can relax and drop that. Yeah. Uh, Sonia Rinpoche, who is uh, Ergen Rinpoche's son, uh, he's a great teacher, in my opinion. Um, he speaks to this idea of a handshake practice. And what you're handshaking with is the resistance within you, with all of the all of the things that come up in you that create resistance, including triggers from all over the place. For he suggests that before you even try to recognize or what if you're trying to recognize and you're having, struggling because emotions are coming up, fear is coming up, forget about the recognizing. Look at the fear, sit with it and be quiet with it. Don't, you know, like try to push it away. Don't try to, you know, like speak to it in ways that might make it, you know, he really speaks to, uh, he personifies these things and he suggests that they're they're kind of living entities in, in and of themselves and they want to be cared for. And mm -hmm. so, and this is within us. This is our fears. This is our, all of the triggers that send us in weird to weird places. He says, just go there, sit with it, 
be with it as you would a child, you know, who's, you know, moping or whatever, and just be present with it. And I like that. I think that's, that's very effective. I mean, I didn't, I didn't do that, but I think I did that in so many different ways over my lifetime that by the time I was, I really did find my way into the, the, this kind of natural state, these things kind of just went, but I probably would have had to do a lot of that earlier work and handshake practicing and all that. Well, it's beautiful. And very, I think, you great for our listeners to hear and very mm -hmm. useful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sonia, well, amazing. Say again. Of, Sorry. Sonia Rinpoche. Uh, it's T-S-O-K-N-Y. And he's he's probably my age. He's uh, late 50s, I think. Um, and but he's incredible, just amazing. And he's got some couple good books, Fearless Simplicity and Carefree Dignity. That I think your listeners would love. Oh, great. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be that a lot of systems would mention how you have to purify over a number of years to get the secret teachings or to awaken. And it seems like Dzogchen and other direct awakening approaches have said, no, that's not really necessary. Mm. What What is your thought about that? And does Dzogchen say that purification and psychological type things is really not that useful or necessary? They don't diss any of that. They don't speak poorly about any of it because it is, in fact, part of the tradition. It's, you know, you go through the uh, sutra traditions and the tantric traditions, and then you move up into the Dzogchen traditions. And, you know, the sutra tradition will say, you know, over many, many lifetimes, you know, these mm -hmm. little everything you do in this one lifetime, and then you keep doing it over many lifetimes, you'll have the opportunity to awaken. Uh, Tantra speeds that up a bit. Dzogchen says, fine, if that's the personality you are, and that's the path you've chosen, keep going. But they say also, you don't need to go that long. You can really, the key is to, to observe your own mind in its natural state. And this is the, you could do this in one lifetime. And the reason why Dzogchen is now being spoken to and taught more freely is because in Tibet, it was a different time. It was a very closed culture and there it was kind of like there was most of everybody in that culture was a practicing Buddhist or a bond practitioner. And at the peak of all of those two traditions was Dzogchen and Mahamudra. And they would only uh, for many years, only one teacher was allowed to give it to one student, these teachings, and it was done very secretively. But, but by the 19th, 20th century, they were taking in more students. And then there was a couple of people who had some force. They foresaw the Chinese coming in and uh, just doing devastation to the, the Buddhist culture. And they recognized that it was time now for these teachings to spread more widely. They also recognized that mind itself on this planet is also evolving in such ways that they're, it's allowing, it's more, it's more accepting of these teachings. Because you can really go wrong. If, if, if you're not getting good teachings with Dzogchen, you can go wrong by letting your ego get in the way, by, by flattering yourself. There's so many ways to take mis missteps in this. And so you're continually recalculating and reorienting yourself. And that's what they don't want you to do. They, they'd rather see you going the, you know, the, the low, the sutra approach where it takes forever and ever and ever, because you're not going to make many mistakes. Yeah. Um, but in Dzogchen, it's a, it's, you could do it in his lifetime. So you can also make some big mistakes and you can spend eight, 50 years 
thinking that you're you're on the path and then find that when you die your mind is shot off somewhere else and you didn't make any progress at all so this is why it's critical to get have a good teacher in your life to receive the teachings and truly understand them so you do have to analyze you have to bring your critical faculties into this practice for a long time but then you also have to learn how to let them go when you've entered because mm -hmm. you don't want to keep critiquing and analyzing because then that just gets in the way of the spaciousness of within yourself to arise. Well said. You mentioned that, that, you know, people can go off course. What might be a couple of signs that a person is using the teachings in a wrong way or starting to veer off course? Well, I mean, I don't know because I don't, I haven't met anyone, but I could see where you can want, you'd want to get ahead of yourself, especially when you're young in your practice and you really feel like you're having some big successes and you want to start talking about it and you want to mm -hmm. start, you know, uh, lecturing about it or, or hey, I, this is the way to go. Do and you I, know my past, Sivan? Because it sounds like you do. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but I mean, when I, I, I spent 30 years practicing these teachings, I never said a word to anybody. And I mean, nobody even knew I was a practitioner until I wrote this book. You know, and then so, you know, when did you write this book? And when how I didn't know you were studying Go Chen. It was like, because, you know, on the one hand, I didn't have the confidence to speak to it. And I'm just a Western practitioner just trying to figure this stuff out. And I'm still a practitioner trying to figure this out. But now I have some experience and I feel like I'm also a writer. So I can put it in a, a language that's not compromising my own journey. It's not assuming that taking the role that I'm assuming I'm a teacher, because I'm not. I'm just saying this is my perspective from a practitioner's perspective. And it could be helpful for all of us Western practitioners to, you know, like share that kind of perspective. But we all need to be speaking to the teachers who are truly either enlightened or right there at the edge, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you did say in the, in the book, you talked about doubt and you, you, you said that, um, you know, we, we, we sometimes need, we, we sometimes don't have confidence in that seeing our mind and that knowing that it's our mind and that sometimes being told that by a teacher helps that confidence. It does. My wife is, I think, pretty good practitioner. She's only been practice, practicing for a few years, but I've given her all kinds of books and I, and I've spoken to a few points, but, you know, but she, she's also a strong headed woman. And so she'd rather read the books and take all kinds of notes and then get in there and try to practice. And, and she didn't feel the confidence that she received until she sat down with a, a, a proper Tibetan master. And then at that point, her intellectual engagement with this practice shifted to an experiential engagement because her confidence, just like I've been welcomed into the lineage by, you know, the living by the living masters of, you know, who've been, who've been receiving these teachings from a thousand years back. So this kind of confidence is really kind of important to know that you're, you've been accepted and the acceptance is like, it's not like the acceptance of the Western sense. You're literally like being welcomed into a tradition that's living and breathing and true. And, but you don't just walk into that, you know, like I'm now a Dzogchen practitioner or I'm a Buddhist practitioner. It doesn't matter. You need to, you know, go through some formalities and they're very simple. You know, they're like simply saying, I'm going to go sit with a teacher for a weekend or read some books and then start really like, um, 
associating my heart with these teachings. And these are the key key points that you need to make as a personal commitment to. And th this develops confidence. And confidence is, and when you're sitting there and you're looking at your own mind as natural state, confidence is critical because if you have any doubt, that kicks you right out and it kicks you right back into the conceptual mind. The doubt, the conceptual mind loves to fill you with doubt and it loves mm -hmm. to fill you with roadblocks. So the certainty is critical for, for progress in these teachings. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about your own mind in its natural state, which you just hmm. mentioned. I Just for our listeners, um, I, I really love to get a better understanding of of what that really means, uh, our own mind in its natural state. Does it mean without the filters of, of all of our thoughts of past and future, or how would you put it? Yes, uh, you're, you, you're, you're looking, you're sitting there, you enter by placing the mind so it's stable. You start observing the thoughts that go, you know, that are coming and going. You look at well, where they're coming from. It's kind of like a habitual practice in the sense of where, where is that? And that's mainly just to kind of get you looking. It's coming out of nothing. It's abiding nowhere. And then it goes nowhere. And this is, this is where the idea of emptiness comes in because it's this mind itself is coming out of nothing. And then when those thoughts begin to settle, because you're looking directly at them, now you're looking at a mind that is truly open, spacious, thoughtless. And then you recognize that mind, this mind that gives rise to the thoughts. And then in doing this, stability kind of creeps in like a membrane dropping away. And this open spaciousness happens right in front of you, right, right in your own mind space. And you recognize that as, as this is what Tibetans call rigpa. Um, and in that recognition, you, you literally try to just rest into it. You, you know, if you feel any tension at all in the body, you just let it go into that. If you feel any tension in, in the back of the head, you know, where the uh, thought is about to arise, or any, you look at that. And, and then at, uh, you're also looking at when you recognize that this is all happening, then you say, okay, who is looking who is the one seeing this? Because in also recognizing that, you recognize that none of that's coming from the portals of the body, these the the you know the eye consciousness, the ear consciousness, the those eyes and those those sense portals are kind of feeding into the mental awareness. And so you're looking at all of that and in and recognizing that nothing within this flesh and blood body is seeing what we're seeing. This kind of like, again, ramps you up into another level of awareness. And again, it's stable, it's open. And in and, and this, you recognize that the body is sitting within awareness, that the car that's passing down the street is now moving through awareness. And in many ways, it is like the images in a mirror where it's all clean. It's all just arising and, and leaving the mirror and arising. The mirror is not being affected in any way. It's all just images. And why are they images? Because this is your awareness. Only you are seeing this in this moment, meaning we have our the shared experience, but your particular awareness, your particular seeing is happening in your own mental landscape. And this is where you're trying to now become familiar. So that mirror has, has, has those arisals in it. It's not happening in another mirror. And so the mirror is not attached to it. 
it lets it come and lets it go. And in the same way, we're trying to do this with our own mind. We're watching these arises come. There's nothing happening there. And then we let them go. And you're trying to now see them not as form, but as mere images within your own awareness. And so, I mean, there's like so many little elements going on in this, in this, in this trying to understand your own mind. But as you do this more and more and more, it becomes part of the whole. It becomes simply a part of observing the awareness as it perceives. And this is your awareness that when the body dies, you when you're in this state, you can actually see your body. You can actually see see your death and, and recognize that your mind is going to continue on because the body is not the awareness. That was a wonderful guided meditation, Sivan. I really oh, appreciate wow. that. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I was wondering if I was going to be able to speak after all that because it, it brought me pretty deep oh, into good. that. Um, I especially like the question, which I haven't really looked at things this way or this question, where are these things arising from? And that the looking creates the potential experience of entering into awareness. Uh, you know, it's not answering the question. It's really a way of turning around in a certain way. And I like that question in particular. Hmm. Um, one, one question I have, you know, mindfulness type meditations are very popular nowadays, and that's become a buzzword. Uh, how do you differentiate Dzogchen from what could be called mindfulness stuff? Well, Dzogchen does speak to being mindful in the sense that you're being mindful of distractions. So while you are entering and trying to practice your insight meditation, you're trying to be as, as well mindful or alert to the moments when you slip and you start thinking about your taxes or whatever. And so you're mindful to remaining stable in your own awareness. They also speak to the word memory or remembering you know, and what are you remembering? You're remembering to to recognize. So they they synonymously use meditation, mindfulness, remembering as a means of you you, you have an intention while you're there, and you're, you the intention is to let it all go. But to get there, you have to be mindful. You have to be alert. So, you know, mindfulness is is good across the board. I think if if all of us could be more mindful, the earth would be such a, a beautiful place to be yeah. but we're not and um you know all of us aren't you know we're all at large portions of our day not mindful so it's i think it's a great training to teach yourself how to be mindful and you also make a distinction in your book between deliberate mindfulness and effortless mindfulness and it seems yes. like like some are used one is useful at one time and another at another so deliberate mindfulness is when you're actually trying to recognize. When you go into your meditation practice and you're just get, you're sitting down, you're going in and you're trying to formally get in there and and recognize this this innate awareness that we all have. Effortless mindfulness takes place when you're actually now comfortably resting in the natural state of mind, and it truly is a vibrantly vivid, alive experience. In, in, in some ways, like being in a dark room and then suddenly you turn on a flashlight, you know, you don't have to try to see, you don't have to try to do anything to, 
so this is the kind of awakening that takes place within these short moments. Then you turn off the flashlight and you're, you're squinting again. That's more deliberate. You're trying to, you know, you could still see, but it's now more difficult. I like that distinction because sometimes there is a intention and effort required, and sometimes uh, intention and effort would actually interfere yes. with the resting element. Yes. And you have to know which one is when to do what. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, sometimes habitually we, we put some effort into it because this is what we've been doing for years and years and years. And then we, we why are we still trying so hard when you don't have to? You know, it's like uh, this idea of, you know, if if you're trying to figure something out and you figure it out, then you don't need to try to figure out anymore. You could just sit with the knowledge of it, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like that. Yeah. That's why your mirror analogy is also so good uh, to awareness. I mean, a mirror doesn't do anything to reflect yes. what's in front of it. It just simply does. And the same with awareness. It really doesn't have to actually do anything. Whatever appears in it just simply is there, appears. And, and it is part of it. And Yes, and it does this naturally. There, there will never be a moment as long as for the rest of eternity where our awareness will not be seeing things. It does this on its own. What we do as conceptual beings is add all kinds of activity to that. And we put all kinds of meaning to it. And we're critiquing and judging and doing all this, you know, running away from or moving toward what we're perceiving. But the awareness itself is simply allowing for all these perceptions to come. So this is what we're trying to train in is to try to uh, more align with the awareness that simply allows rather than the conceptual being that is con- that is always attaching and doing things with that. Mm-hmm. Now, you have a, a chapter in your book about the importance of avoiding toxic media. Mm. Uh, I'm wondering what you can say about that. Well, the, the chapter really begins with food, toxic food, um, because there's so much of our food is laden with pesticides, and this does affect the body. And in fact, we need to really take care of our body. And to to get into the natural state of mind, you have to be in your body. You have to return awareness into the body. So explore the body, figure out where there are ailments, where things are being shut down. And you want to try to open them up with your awareness, but also with good food. Then once you start cleaning, and the food part's easy, because if you just buy organic, if you just buy, you know, food that doesn't have pesticides in it, you're going to clean up pretty quickly within a couple of weeks, within two months, you're going to, your brain's going to be really clean. But then we also have toxic media, which is basically, I think any news channel in the Western world, they're going to be giving you information, even, even the more, most neutral ones speaking about the war in Russia, you know, all the, you know, the economy, you know, just standard news can be upsetting. It could really f- fill the mind with images and, you know, things that you really don't, if, if your aim is to awaken, then you don't need that stuff. You don't need to be on top of the daily reports of war, the daily reports of suffering. You know, all of us is being a part of this world. We're going to get that anyways. It's, it's going to come to us. So we don't need to keep feeding ourselves day in with our ritualized watching television or listening to infectious, highly destructive, you know, opinionated media. Mm-hmm. So I suggest... Get, getting rid of that because it, that does toxify the mind and you really feel it you know like if i'm if i'm in an airport and i'm just sitting there and all you know i'm getting this television from eight different angles 
I really feel the energy of that in my body now, whereas, you know, 30 years ago, I didn't, you know, but mm -hmm. when you start to practice, you recognize these things that make you feel uncomfortable. And those things that make you feel uncomfortable are going to trouble you in your meditation. Yeah, mm. well, I can really relate to that because I, I know the feeling of how easy it is for one little thing to all of a sudden set up this big argument in, mm. inside my mind where, yeah. where I'm trying to convince somebody else of something that, that I think they shouldn't in my own mind. I, they're too. not there. I do too. And has nothing to do with the present moment or anything. Yeah. Um, but just to play the devil's advocate a little bit, sometimes yeah. I, I, I'm concerned about, um, about letting it go because I'm always haunted by this famous quote, which is uh, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Yes. And, and so sometimes it concerns me because I would like to just completely ignore the news altogether, but then I worry about that. Yeah. You know, I came from, I come from the same era, you know, where <laughs> be informed uh, because it makes you a better citizen. And, uh, you know, this is true. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I was a soldier most of my life and not, not a battlefield soldier, but, you know, street soldier, you know, martial artist, because I did, I was filled with fear. I was, you know, I grew up in, in Los Angeles and Van Nuys, you know, where everybody's, there was riots, there were people were beating up on everybody. It was, you know, I was trained, I trained under Chuck Norris and uh, all these amazing martial arts teachers. And, you know, like then practicing Chen under some fierce teachers. And, and in many ways, I felt like, like, what do I want to be? Do I want to be the soldier on the street or do I want to enlighten? Do I want to get in touch with my heart? Because when I was a soldier on the street, my heart felt closed, but I was a badass mother. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, at some point I said, you know, I don't want to be that. I want to be, I want to, I want to wake up. I want to wake up from all of that. And, and so there's going to be plenty of these people, plenty of us who want to be that good citizen. And, and so evil doesn't triumph again, although it continues to, but who is going to be the ones who are going to take the lead on the, on the spiritual front, on the awakening front? Well, that's, I want to be that. I want to do that for myself. And then ultimately I want to do that for all sentient beings mm -hmm. but first i need to wake myself up and this is a long process sometimes it's frustrating sometimes it's lovely but this is the path i'm choosing mm -hmm. right well in a sense you're not doing nothing and it's like the analogy of uh, the mother put on your own mask first and then uh, yes and then help your children yeah and that, i use that metaphor in the uh, the the, about the food chapter about take care of your body first because you're you're useless if your body's in in wreckage you're kind of not contributing to the world in any way because you're depressed you're sick you're not feeling well so take care of the body then you could take care of your mind and then you could take care of others yeah i like that order because if you don't take care of your body it'll start screaming at you and then uh then you don't have any energy for anything else exactly yeah um, is there any question that you feel like we haven't asked that you would like to attend to or that we've missed or something? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying the, I mean, I love, I love where these conversations go, no matter what's missing or, but you oftentimes is how much we cover is, is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You guys are great. You guys are work well together as a team. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm certainly enjoying talking to you as well. <laughs> this is lots of fun. Any any last questions you think of, Brian? Yeah, I do have one, and this is um this is a this is a question that I 
that I've had with a lot of different teachers from different disciplines. And I think you may have answered this question in your chapter on ghost stories, but mm. I'm going to ask it anyway. Because in the previous chapter, Looking for the Self, you outline a technique where we we look for the eye within each individual part of our bodies yeah. and then uh, fail to find it. And I, I have never thought of that the eye I've never thought of my eye as being some small part hidden somewhere within my body and mind, but as my entire body. I mean, everything, everything that's not you or something else. So it doesn't surprise me that I wouldn't find that eye in any small part. It would be like if you said, here's a, here's a coffee cup, try and find the entire cup within the handle of the cup. And, and then since you don't find it, that proves that the cup doesn't exist. It doesn't, that doesn't quite work for me. I, my sense of the eye is, is of the whole. So I was wondering um, if if you have advice to someone like me, who's not Mm. surprised or enlightened by the fact that I can't, that the eye can't be found in an individual part of the body. Yeah, the point of the exercise is is much because many people t- never think about it. So part of the practice is to start thinking about it because uh, I want this and you you made me feel like this. So who is this me, this, this I? Where is it? Where does it exist? And the practice is meant to show you that it actually doesn't exist in the body. So where then does it exist? Um, but the, the point of the practice of what the great masters will say is, okay, so if, if, if you think of it as globally as the body, then, then point to it, essentially. And you can't, you, you know, instinctually, you know, you can't. But they're, they're really trying to say, okay, if you can point to it, then it, it should be anywhere. If the body is a singular unit, it should be anywhere in that body. You find that the body is not a singular unit. And the point of that is to recognize that the body is composite. It's not a singular unit. It's made up of all different kinds of things. Now, this is an intellectual practice until you begin to rest in the natural state and you actually do, you're continually saying, okay, for instance, who is seeing this thing that I'm seeing? You know, the, this stability. And in Zen, they uh, well, many practices, they say, okay, look at the emptiness and you see the emptiness. You spent a lot of years training in that. Chen now says, okay, but who has seen that? And then we go, well, I'm seeing it. You know, of course I'm seeing it, but okay. So now where is that eye coming from? And you're, so that it, it kind of integrates with that shod practice. Then you become familiar that the body's not the one seeing it. So now it's an awareness. Some, somewhere in our awareness of seeing is claiming the eye. And so now you're looking for the awareness. And ultimately you're seeing that the awareness is seeing itself. It's self-aware. And this is the kind of the, the flipping point where your own perception, which is habitual because we don't think about it, begins to move past each other and, and it begins to break down because now no longer there is no functioning I. And now we're now looking at an awareness that's self-aware, that's recognizing itself. And this is where we want to begin to align ourselves is in that realm of no I. So it's... It's not like that one practice is meant to do m- much more than get you thinking, get you looking, get you training that you need to be looking somewhere else for that eye. And then ultimately, you never find the eye because the eye doesn't exist. The eye itself is a conceptual entity of sorts. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I really do think that goes to the meat of it, awareness, seeing awareness. And, and yes. what I've noticed is that that sense of the I being the body is also just like thoughts, sounds, sensations is just another appearance in awareness, which yes. is bigger and includes all yeah. of it. See, you're a Zogchen practitioner. Oh, yay. And <laughs> <laughs> now, you, certi- and now certified. It. Brian, I think you would love it. I think <laughs> you would really, philosophically, it's really just exciting. The, the, the Dzogchen and Mahamudra teachings are unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I did study for quite a while with someone who studied, so it's sort of secondhand, but Locke Kelly um, studied uh, with a lot of Mahamudra and Dzogchen teachers yes. directly, yes. and uh, which is why I recognized and related to so many um, terms and, and practices in your yes. book. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you for, uh, for taking the time to read it. So well, how, how can people get hold of your book or learn more about you, Sivan? So you can go to enteringthemind.com or you can go to riotmaterial.com, the magazine. They're both kind of, uh, Riot Material has been a long-term art magazine, art and film and music, um, great writing, some good topics. And then the book is kind of hosted in the magazine under enteringthemind.com. It'll take you there. This this uh, podcast will come up on it when it goes live and there's others. We have events. We're doing a, uh, a speaking as book signing event in Joshua Tree. So the magazine and or entering the mind will will get you all the information you need. Fantastic. Well, it's been a real treat, and uh, I'm a little high <laughs> from the talk. <laughs> what have you been smoking? <laughs> Didn't need to smoke anything. I just uh, was kind of guided there, and we really appreciate your wisdom and and the ability to describe Zochen in such a uh, simple way that that I think it takes the mystery either in it or out of it in a way that people can very easily access. Great. Wonderful. Well, I'd love to come back anytime. Anytime you're, uh, you have a dead spot in your show, call me up. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Sounds good. Any Thank last you. words, Brian? No, I'm just very grateful. And I really enjoyed this conversation. A lot, me too. So. Me too. Yes. And for our listeners, keep exploring. Keep exploring. Keep exploring. Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you would post a review. And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends. Because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love.